Good morning. Good morning. Christ is risen. risen Thank you. How very neighborly of you. That's, <laughs> that's a fitting act on your part, given the topic for today. Now, I always have a, a pretty good sense of how ironic it is that I have been called by the Lord to speak the gospel. Uh, that The irony of that is not lost on me. It is particularly acute in moments like this, where I, the task at hand is to preach about the most important thing in our faith, to love God and love your neighbor. I remember a few, two or three years ago now, I was asked to speak at a church in Lakeland, Florida, and they were in the middle of a, of a series, and their theme was happiness. And I was asked to speak on happiness. And all of you who know me know how hilarious that is, right? Like that is, I, I was the one to hit the ironic note in that, in that series. Well, if that was funny, and it was, think about how much stranger it is that I'm supposed to preach on neighborliness. But here, thankfully not everyone laughed at that, right? <laughs> I am married to someone who's an excellent neighbor, and I have really good friends who are neighbors. In fact, I was hardly able to sleep last night because of overeating on all the incredible food that Mark and Danielle provided. So just know that when I'm talking about this, this is not lost to me. So all of you who know how I failed to be a neighbor, I at least know that too, right? So we can, we're speaking from that place. The gospel text today that we just heard says that we are to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I think the first and most important thing that we reject any kind of linear or simple understanding of how those two commands fit to each other. We cannot think that if we love God, then loving our neighbor will just happen. It doesn't work like that. It's not that loving my neighbor is simply the automatic working out of my love for God. Because the truth is, in some ways, loving God is easier than loving my neighbor. God, after all, is good. My neighbors are not always good. God is faithful. My neighbors are not always faithful. God cares for me, loves me. My neighbors do not always care for me and love me. And so there, there are many ways in which loving God is easier, especially when we confuse love for simple feeling. It is much easier for many of us, it's certainly easier for me, to feel toward God desire and affection than it is to feel desire and affection toward the person most in need who's nearest to me. And so in some ways, loving God is not even possible until you've loved your neighbor. So John, in his epistle, will say it like this. If you say you love God whom you have not seen, do not love your brother whom you have seen, you're a liar. For you cannot love God if you do not love your brother. Now, I find that phrasing striking. You cannot love God if you do not love your brother. Now, one way of taking that is to simply say, if you say you love your, neighbor, your, your God, but you don't love your neighbor, then you're deceiving yourself. But there's another way of reading it that I think is stronger and more to the point, and that is, if you can't love your neighbor, who's like you and near you, how much more difficult is it going to be to love God, whose ways are not your ways and whose thoughts are not your thoughts? A God who's truly holy, who's truly other than you. And so I think there's some way in which loving neighbor comes even before loving God. St. Anthony the Great, though, I think gets it exactly right. The, the father of desert monasticism, he says it this way, that we must 
Live life and death with our neighbor. Our life and our death is with our neighbor, he says. If we gain our brother, we have gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against Christ. Now notice how for him, these two commands are really one command. The, co- the command to love God is the same command as the command to love your neighbor. They're inseparably bound up together. That what you do to your neighbor, you are doing to God. What you do to God, you're doing to your neighbor. And in this way, there's nothing private for the Christian. It can be deeply personal, but there's nothing private. Because whatever I do with God alone in my prayer closet matters for my neighbor. And whatever I do in public for my neighbor matters for God. But think about the weight of this. That if we gain our brother, we have gained God. If we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against Christ. I think if, if, I'm, if my experience is like yours, I think there are, can, there are three ways to mishear this command. How fitting that it, said, that it rang at mishear. <laughs> Have your attention now, right? How, there are ways in which we can mishear this command. The first is we just don't hear it at all because we assume we're already doing it pretty well. So some of you may feel like that, and this sermon can't be for you, right? This... If you're already loving God and loving your neighbor pretty well, then take the next 15 minutes or so off, right? Catch your breath, get ready for the Eucharist, right? The rest of you, right, I think are, are going to be tempted to hear this one of two ways. One is to hear it as a law that you simply cannot obey. That God is saying, love me and love your neighbor, and it's an overwhelming burden. And there are times in my life this is what it sounds like. God, you're asking me, to do what I literally cannot do. Love God and then love my neighbor as myself, I don't even know where to begin with that. I'm not capable of responding like that. The other, and I hope this is even more often the case for me, but it's at least sometimes the case, that I hear it and I want to do it, but I don't know where to begin with doing it. I want to want to, at least. Like I have a desire for the desire, if nothing else, but I don't know where to begin with it. What, do I, what does it look like really to love God and love neighbor in a way that's, that's fitting, that's appropriate? Those are mishearings, though. Somehow we have to hear this command as gospel and not law. We have to hear it as grace and not judgment. We have to hear it as invitation and not burden. That the command to love God and love neighbor is God's way of inviting us into the fullness of life as he means it for us. And that in that sense, it is possible for us. It's not, he's not asking of us the impossible. He's asking something that's true to what we are as creatures, true to what we are as persons, if we can find a way to respond. But how? Like, what does it actually mean to love God and love neighbor? We can affirm it, we can agree to it, we can nod and go along, but what does it actually mean to love God and love neighbor? What is actually being called for? How, do I, how does that translate into the life I'm going to live day to day? The life I live with my wife and my children, the life I live with my friends and my students, the life I live with you. What does that actually mean? This is, I think, one of the real difficulties of being a Christian in our day and time. We've been so Christianized, so deeply drenched in Christian language and ideas that the deepest truths are almost vague to us because we know they're right we know we're called to love God and love neighbor but there's no actual content to it I remember and I probably shared this with you before but I remember I was at a conference 
probably been four or five years ago now, and the sermon was on servanthood. And this, the preacher who was masterful, kind of the opposite of what's going on right now, right? Masterful preacher, and he's got this crowd worked into a fervor, talking about the, the ministry of the towel. Jesus, you know, wraps himself in a towel, washes feet, and all of that. And these people are ready to charge the gates of hell with him. They believe in servanthood so much. But something was, like, not settling right with me. Like, I had this kind of unsettledness. And I kept wondering why. Like, he's not saying anything wrong. And, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm glad these people are so happy about being servants. And then it hit me. He's not said anything specific. He's just talking about servanthood. So as long as you just talk about servanthood, everybody agrees with that. But then when that becomes concrete, when that becomes, so the next time you see a man on the corner holding up a little cardboard sign that says, we'll work for food, then no matter what you're doing, stop and give that man work. Suddenly, you're not ready to charge the gates of hell. Now you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on what I'm going to see. What's my gut feeling when I see that person? Or, you know, just, I'm going to have to make a call in the moment, right? So as soon as it becomes concrete and specific, all of that glad-handing about servanthood starts to die away. So I don't know if I can do it, but I want to get past that kind of vague generalization about loving God and loving neighbor. We all know we're supposed to do that. But clearly, it means something. And I want to try to press into what does it mean, actually. I want to press into it for myself, because I want, at least today, I want to do it. Don't ask me tomorrow, we'll see. But at least today, I want to obey. I want to respond to this command that is my life. I want to follow Jesus into loving God and loving neighbor, but I have to have some sense of what that actually means. I can't just smile and clap and go home and say, I'm glad I was reminded of something that I don't really understand. I've got to come to terms with what I'm being asked to do. And so, with that in mind, I want to turn to the story of the Good Samaritan, as we call it, which, by the way, is in a very offensive title. The Good Samaritan. What's the, what's the subtext of the Good Samaritan? But all the other Samaritans are bad, right? So this, this man is exceptional. He's a good one, right? So let's call him the Compassionate Samaritan. All the others are not compassionate. <laughs> Luke 10, verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know exactly what's taking place here, but we do know that Jesus has just told his disciples in the hearing of the crowds that God has hidden his things from the wise and the learned and has revealed them to babes. And then he says to the disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for you will see what has been hidden from the prophets. And immediately upon saying that, this man, whoever he is, stands up and tests Jesus. Now, Luke does not tell us what the man's motives were and what exactly he means by testing Jesus. It could be that he, he's wanting to bring Jesus down a notch. You've met people like this, I assume. I have neighbors like this. Maybe it's because I'm an academic, so I run into these people all the time, right, who their calling in life is to just keep you humble, right? Like they, they, can, they can see you start to be a little too full of yourself, and they're like, well, think about this for a moment. Look, let's bring you down a notch. And I can imagine that that's one of the ways of imagining what this lawyer, what this man is doing. He hears Jesus talking about all these wonderfully deep, profound truths about God, and he's like, well, let's think about this for a moment, right? But it could also be that he's actually drawn to Jesus, and he wants to make sure that Jesus 
is what he thinks he is. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be malicious. There, there's a way in which this man very well could be sincerely wanting to know, can Jesus answer this question for me? But regardless of what it is, he stands up and he tests Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus puts the question back at him. What is written in the law? What do you read there? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. You have given the right answer. Can you imagine? I mean, for those of you who are always trying to make an A on every, every test, can you imagine if this is you? Like, you say to Jesus, I think it's love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus is like, that's exactly right, right? A hunt, like, some of my wife, she cares very much about grades. Like, that, that would be the pinnacle of her existence, I think, right? She made an A in a course with Jesus, right? You, you've given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And again, the way this is phrased, it could mean so many different things. It could mean that the man feels guilty, and so he's trying to find a way to, to come to terms with his own guilt, justify himself. But it also could be that he, he recognizes the ways in which his life is out of alignment with this, and he's trying to find a way to press into specificity. Tell me then... Who am I supposed to do this with? And that, that's the way that it hits me, at least today. Is that the, he's not trying to self-justify. He's trying to find a way to bring his life into alignment with what he believes is true. I want to obey, but I don't know how, because I don't know exactly what you're asking me to do. Love my neighbor. Okay, that's wonderful. I have no idea what that actually means. Let me think of it like this. If, loving my, if I'm called to love my neighbor, what does that mean when my boss is lying about me? to his boss or her boss? What does loving my neighbor mean in that case? What does loving my neighbor look like if a sex offender moves into my neighborhood? What does loving my neighbor look like when the teacher at school, I feel like, is being abusive to my child? What does loving my neighbor look like when I find out that some minister in the church where I'm worshiping is caught up in some kind of corruption? What does loving my neighbor mean in those cases? What does loving my neighbor mean if, if my neighbor is actively seeking my harm? I, I don't know. It certainly can't just mean vague feelings of fondness. Right? It can't just have you know, some clouded sense of well-wishing. It has to translate to the way that I live. Notice what Jesus says to him. Do this. Do this. Not feel this. Do this, and you will live. But then Jesus... What in the world do I do? I mean, I don't mean to get impatient with Jesus, but this is not really helping me. To tell me to love my neighbor and to do that and I will live is, is all well and good, but I don't know what it actually means. And so the man says, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus infuriatingly tells a story. And it's a story we all know. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So again, Jesus puts the question on him. Tell me, of these three men, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which one was a neighbor? Now, notice one of the things that's striking here is that the man wanted to find out how to identify who his neighbor was. How do I know who my neighbor is? How do I sort the people in my life that I should treat in this way? And what has Jesus done by, ask, by telling the parable in this way? The question is not, who is your neighbor? But will you be a neighbor to anyone you meet? The, the question is not, do you have neighbors? Who do you have, whom do you have to treat lovingly? The question is, Will you be a neighbor when you encounter need? The question's about you, not about them. You're trying to decide who deserves this kind of care. Everyone deserves this kind of care. You've got to learn to live it. Yes. Yes. We, we're spending way too much time. Now, I'm, I'm, I might get a little preachy here, so give me just a moment. We're spending way too much time in conservative, evangelical, charismatic circles trying to sort out who we should treat what way. The question for Jesus is not, who deserves your ministry? But will you be a minister to anyone you meet who is in need? You are the neighbor. That's the point. Everyone who is in need is there for you to be a neighbor to, for you to be neighborly with, right? And so Jesus says, which one was a neighbor to the man who was harmed? And the man says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, that's it. Go and do that. So here's, I think, the truth. Loving your neighbor is as specific and as concrete as being merciful to those who are in need near you. Loving your neighbor is being merciful. But again, mercy is not a feeling. It, it, can, be, and it can be carried along by feelings. In this case, the Samaritan is moved by pity. But his mercy is not being moved by pity. This story could have read that he sees the man and is moved with pity and then went on his way. And most of the time in my life, I think that's what happens. I think much of the time, at least, I have the right feeling. I just don't always know how to translate that into action for people. We don't know what the Levite and the priest felt. We don't know if they were disgusted. We don't know if they were afraid. But for all we know, they were moved to pity too. They just didn't know how to translate it into care for this man. Martin Luther King, when he preached on this passage, said, the, the priest and the Levite asked themselves, what will happen to me if I care for this man? And the Samaritan asked, what will happen to this man if I do not care for him? What will happen to me if I care for this man? What will happen to this man if I don't care for him? Those, those, the MLK says those are the two questions you have to ask. But the key here for me is that the mercy is what you actually do for someone. Not, not that you're moved by pity. Let's, let's listen to these words by St. Peter of Damascus. He says, there is the greatest thing is to heal a person. The greatest thing is to heal a person. It excels all other virtues because among the virtues, there is nothing higher or more perfect than love for one's neighbor. 
The greatest thing is to heal a person. So here is what I think we have, how we have to think. The call of God to love our neighbor looks like the call of God to show the kind of mercy that brings healing to people who are near us and who are hurting. Full stop. We don't have to ask questions about whether or not they're living well enough to deserve it. We don't have to ask questions about whether or not they are in or out. Whether or not they're acceptable objects of our mercy. It has nothing to do with their quality of life. It has nothing to do with their holiness or their sinfulness. It has nothing to do with their intentions or their desires. If they are in need, the call on us is to be their neighbor by healing them through mercy. That's the Christian call. And as long as I'm thinking about them instead of myself, as long as I'm trying to control the situation by determining whether or not they deserve my attention, I will never be able to be a neighbor. Because I'll always be at a remove wondering what will happen to me if I care for them. Now, I don't want to strike too near the quick. And do not read into this too much. But I, I want to make sure you hear me saying something specific this morning. You remember all the hubbub over the last few years about whether or not you would bake a cake. Remember this? I don't need to go too deeply into that example, do I? Would you bake a cake for a same-sex marriage? There's something about that conversation that reveals a twisted heart. Now, wherever, here's my point. Don't answer that question. That's, that's like asking um, some, me coming to Mark and say, have you stopped beating Danielle yet? <laughs> right? There's no good answer to that question. If he says, no, I haven't, well, we've got a problem. If he says, yes, I have, then he's accepted that there was already an issue. The question about who I will show mercy to, if you even entertain that as a question, that, that the idea that you can show mercy only to people who deserve mercy, that's already a deeply unchristian question. The right response to that is, I can't think like that. I don't even know what that question means. All I know is, God has called me to see people who are hurting and to care for them. And if any other question comes up, I don't know what that means. All I know is I've been called to be a neighbor to anyone who's in front of me who's hurting. That's all I know. I have to care. I have to heal them. There's nothing greater than to heal a person who is in need, especially if that person doesn't deserve it. That's the gospel after all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You do realize after all, you didn't deserve it. Right? You precisely were that person who was broken, left for dead, and didn't deserve the attention you received. But God finds you lost and broken and dying, and he didn't stop to ask whether or not you were going to do something with it. He didn't say, do I dare invest my time here? God doesn't invest time because he's not looking for an outcome other than your good. God gives himself to you because all he cares about is your good. That's what we're called to be. See, I'm getting carried away here. That's who we're called to be. And we're asking the wrong kinds of questions. And both answers to that question are wrong because it's a wrong question. We ought to be people who refuse to engage in that kind of dialogue at all. We are people who care for those who are in need, period. So, really quickly, looking at what the Samaritan does. The first is... He sees him, but then he sees to his needs. 
And one of the things that's striking about the way this parable is told is that Jesus tells it to make the point that all of them see him. The priest sees the man that goes by on the other side. The Levite sees the man that goes by on the other side. The Samaritan sees the man and is moved by pity and comes to him. So it's not enough to see people. It's not enough to see needs. And it's not enough to even be moved by those needs. Somehow we have to see to the needs. This is who God is. He's not only the God who sees us, although he is. He's the God who sees to us. Who actually acts in ways that delivers us. And if there is a kind of disease in in our community, it's the disease of seeing problems that we recognize as problems, but we don't actually address. It's not enough to say, I see that racism is a problem. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to actually do to confront the disease of racism in our communities? We can't just feel something about it. We can't just be angry about it. We have to enact mercy. We have to bring healing. We have to find people who have been harmed, who've been left for dead because of the racism of other people, and we have to heal those wounds. And we have to find those people who have racism in their hearts and realize that those are from wounds too, and we have to heal those wounds. We have to do something about it. We have to look into families where domestic abuse is taking place. We have to recognize that the abuser has been abused, and we have to heal those wounds, but we have to do that in a way in which the abused is also healed. These are the things we ought to be concerned with. I mean, the, the call to be a Christian is not the call to sing better songs or preach better sermons. It's to heal our neighbors. There is nothing greater than to heal our neighbors. And trust me, everybody you know needs healing. Everybody you know needs healing. If we could really be honest with each other, if I could really tell you what's going on in my life, if I could really be honest with you, you would realize how desperate I am for healing. And it's true of every single one of you in this room. And it's true of every single person outside this room. It's true of those children down that hall and the people who are caring for them. It's true of the people out on the street. It's true of those people we passed in the soccer fields this morning. It's true of all the people in the restaurant when you go to lunch after this. It's true of everyone in your family. It's true of everyone at your job. Everybody you meet is bleeding and half dead, whether you realize it or not. And at some point, you have to not only see them and not only be moved with compassion for them, you have to do something about it. I have to do something about it. I have to find a way to say the right word or keep my words to myself. I have to find a way to hear them and listen to them. I have to find a way to give my money and my time to them. I have to do something that begins to bring healing to them. And notice what he does. He sees him. He sees to the man. He pours in oil and wine and binds the wounds. And one of the things that strikes me about this is that the first thing he does is he cleanses the wounds. He recognizes that there's woundedness, and then he does what he can to keep it from infecting. Now, again, I know I'm getting a little fired up, but that, you're just going to have to live with it this morning. I can't help myself. What this looks like is when you're sitting with someone and you start to hear gossip rage out of them, you start to hear bitterness rise up out of their hearts. You ought to immediately see that's a wound. And 
my response to this is either going to infect that wound or it's going to cleanse it. Now, I'm not going to heal it in this moment. I'm not going to be able to repair the, do, a, do a kind of reparative surgery and send them out well. But I can respond in a way that infects that wound further or cleanses it. And the way I respond to your bitterness in that moment is either going to wash you out with oil and wine, be an antiseptic to kind of remove some of that disease, to keep you from having a worse disease down the line, or I'm just going to meet your bitterness with my own, meet your anger with my own, meet your bitterness with my indifference. And in any of those responses, all I'm doing is infecting that wound further, which means that thou, now you have double trouble, right? Now you've got the wound itself, and then you've got the infection in the wound. And most of us, that's what we die from. Not the wound, not what people do to us, but what happens to those wounds over time because people won't care for the wounds. The reason people lose their faith or become bitter, angry Christians or bitter, angry persons is not because of what happened to them. It's what didn't happen after what happened to them. It's not because someone mistreated them. It's because none of the friends and neighbors cared for them once they had been mistreated. We're much more resilient than you think. But if our wounds get infected, let me talk to Sanctuary again specifically. With all the things that have played out in this community over the last five years, you realize I've been here for six years now. I've seen a few things happen in this community. I know enough, I don't know everything, but I know enough to know the ways in which there are wounds in this community that have been inflicted by other people in the community. And some of those people aren't here today because of that. But our responsibility we can't keep people from getting wounded. Wounds are going to come. But we don't have to infect the wounds, and we don't have to leave them infected. The Samaritan only shows up after the man is already in the road. He didn't get there in time to stop the robbery. He didn't get there in time to stop the wounding. But he showed up in time to cleanse the wounds. You're always going to be behind the robbers. You're always going to show up a little too late. Everybody you meet has already been wounded. But you don't have to leave the wounds infected. Pour in the oil and the wine. Do what you can to bring health even to the wounds themselves. And then bind them up. Bind them up. There's a great image from, uh, I, I was speaking at a church in, in North Carolina a few years ago, and this man, he had sheep, and he asked if he could share this story with me and, and with us as a community. And he said that whenever a young sheep is hurt in some way, wounded badly, that what he does is he cleanses the wound and he binds it. And then every day he unbinds the wound, and cleanses it again and puts in medicine and binds it. And he said, this is the constant process. Every day, bind after you've given it medicine, unbind it the next day, cleanse, put some medicine, some ointment on it, bind it again. This is what we have to be doing. We have to be covering the wounds. You remember the text, the biblical text? It's in Proverbs and then quoted in the New Testament. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers. And there ought to be something in us that says, if I can keep other people from seeing your wounds, as long as your wound is being cared for, if I can keep other people from seeing it, I will. There's no need for them to know that. As long as there are those we can be open with, and they can care for us. We don't have to show our wounds to everyone else. But here's what happens. If you live in a community where there's no one who cleanses your wounds and binds them up, then you go through life with your wounds exposed to everyone. And when you live with your wounds exposed to everyone, guess what you catch at every turn? Infection. The reason we cover up wounds 
is because we're trying to protect the wounded person from infection. We don't hide these wounded things because we're ashamed of them. We're all wounded people. There's nothing to be ashamed of. But we need to protect one another from words that are said foolishly. How many times, again, I'm getting, I'm a little bit out of control. I'm a little manic right now, so sorry about that. But like, I feel like my heart is going to explode with this. I think about my aunt, my mom's sister, I love dearly, who lost her husband tragically. The grief that overcame her life. And her wound, this grieving, she carried with her everywhere. So much so that people could see it almost immediately. And I cannot tell you how many times people spoke to that in ways that simply infected the wound. Saying things like, and I'm not exaggerating, saying things like, well, I knew your husband. I don't think you should grieve him as much as you are. That was a pastor who said that. Or a case like, well, it's been three years. Something's wrong with you if you're still grieving. Now, you know what's taking place there? Not to expose her wound, but as, with an example, she, as an example to us. When you go through life with your wounds exposed like that, and there's no one to cleanse them and hide them, then that means every idiot you stumble into is going to feel like God has given them a right to speak to you. And that is death. That is death. And sanctuary, we better not be that kind of community. We better see these needs and see to these needs so that the people who are suffering in this community, and it's everyone, doesn't stumble out into the world to have their wounds infected by people right and left who think they're doing the Lord's work but in fact are just bringing death and disease. I'm almost done. He pours in the oil and the wine, he binds the wound, and then he carries the man to the end. Because part of caring for people is realizing our own limitations. None of us can be everything to anyone. None of us can be everything to anyone. I can't be everything my wife needs. I can't be everything my children need. A pastor can't be everything a congregation needs. A parent can't be everything a child needs, and so on and so on. We have to know how to recognize our limits and say, this is what I can do. But at this point, I've got to to share you with other people. Because this is the limit of my ability. I can pour in the oil and the wine. I can bind the wound. But at some point, I've got to turn you over to the end. This is something I don't know that we do so well. I don't know that we think about healing other people as something that takes a village. It takes a village to destroy people. And it takes a village to heal them. And we at Sanctuary need to be the kind of community that knows our own limitations as healers and know the gifting of other people around us and say, what you need right now is you need a good sit-down conversation with Pastor Brent. That's what you need. I I can't do that for you, but I I know he can. He's got the wisdom. He can hear you. Like, if you tell that to me, it's going to make me angry and I'm going to punch you in the throat. But he, (laughs) he knows how to listen. Think about, think about what would happen if we had that kind of wisdom as a community, where we knew each other well enough, where we were close enough as friends. Right? We didn't just come on Sunday morning. I mean, I don't know how well you all know each other. But it would be a tragedy if we didn't know each other well enough to know the gifts and strengths we bring to healing for other people. If, if, if I didn't know, I mean, they're, they're just this... Past week, I had a young couple come to my wife and me, and they're really struggling. And I thought about a... a, a 
married couple in this community. And I said, you know what? I need to get you in touch with this couple at Sanctuary because they've lived through exactly what you're living through. And, and Julie and I haven't. I have no idea what to say to you. But I know someone who doesn't know what to say. So let me connect you. That's what healing looks like. Knowing each other, well, living together well enough and closely enough, long enough to figure out this is where the Lord's gift in your life starts to come to bring healing. And he leaves him with the innkeeper. He trusts him to the innkeeper. And throughout the church's reading of this text, the inn is always seen as the church. The inn is the church. Turning people to the church. And then this is what hit me this week. There's only one other time in the Gospel of Luke that there's a reference to an inn. There was no room for them in the inn. And this is what I felt the Lord, I heard the Lord say to me. My people will never be faithful until they realize there'll never be an inn. There'll never be the, the place where the broken can come to be healed until they realize that I'm the one for whom there was no room. The one we're called to be is precisely the one who had no room. Now think about that. We're called to be the inn, to care for, the, for those who are broken, because we live in the spirit of Christ, the one for whom there was no room. So you think about having a policy at the front door that says, well, we can't care for everyone. What do you think Jesus is going to say when he shows up and hears that? That we didn't have room for them. Or they weren't the right kind of people for us to care for. Or we weren't sure that they would be responsible with it. He's not going to hear that. Because he's the one who was kept out because there was no room. He was not the right kind of person. His skin wasn't the right color. He didn't have the right promise. He didn't have the right potential. He's the one who gets left out. And that means if we're going to be people who represent him, there's always room in this inn. We don't keep anybody out of this inn. You hear me? There's always room in this inn because it's Jesus' inn. And his story is a story that begins with not having room. And he's determined that will never happen to anyone else. It happened to him, but it won't happen to anyone else. In this community, there is always room in the inn. Always, whoever they are, whatever they've done. Whether they seem contrite or not. Whether they promise to do better or not. Whether their sin is egregious enough to offend everyone or not. In this house, there is room for every broken person. We are not going to adjudicate which sins and which diseases we're going to care for. If you're broken... This is a place of healing for you. That's what we're called to. And nothing less than that. So when we come to the table in just a moment, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that no matter what your wound is, and I promise you in a room like this, there are stories that if we knew them would frighten us to the bone. I promise you. If we knew one another's stories fully, there's some of us who couldn't stay in the room with others of us. But all of us are invited to this table. Because there is one who does know your story to the full. He knows every ugly, dark, broken thing about you. And you know what he says? 
Come in. I want to eat with you. He's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of your brokenness. He's not afraid of your disease. Think about that Samaritan on the side of the road, covered in another man's blood. He's not afraid that he's going to catch something. He's not worried about what's going to happen to him if he cares for this man. All he's worried about is what's going to happen to this man if he doesn't care for him. And that's all you're going to meet today at this table. However I may fail to live that, and however Mark may fail to live that, and however Brent may fail to live that, Christ will not fail to live this. No matter what your brokenness is, He's not afraid of you. Come and sit down at this table. You are welcome, and you're as welcome as anyone else. You're as welcome as the archangels, and the cherubs, and the little children. There are no people for whom there's no room at this inn. God, please help us to hear this and to believe it. To believe it if we're the one, and we all are in some way, lying in the road half dead. And help us to hear it if we're the man passing by and seeing the brokenness. Let sanctuary be a place where everyone is welcome and knows they're welcome. And where everyone sees a responsibility to heal. Let it become a healing house. A place where it's not just safe for the sick to be, but it's actually transformative for the sick. So that what is broken in their lives can be set. What is diseased can be cleansed and healed. That this is not just a place where the sick come together. This is a place where the sick come to be cared for and to be healed. Do you hear that difference? We're not just a place where you're safe. You are safe, but that's, that's not all. This isn't just a place where you can be yourself. This is a place where Christ can act on you. So that what you are isn't what you will be. We want you as you are. But when you come in here, don't think you're going to leave as you are. Because Christ meets you here. i got to stop. But hear my heart. Hear my heart. Sanctuary, we have a calling. We have a calling to be a healing house. And not to be afraid of any disease. Amen. Come on, Mark. Get, get me out of the way.